Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, the radio show and podcast for those who won't just take things on faith. Brought to you by Reality Radio, WPRR 1680 AM in Grand Rapids, Michigan, the aglet on America's Bible shoelace. You can find us online at www.doubtcast.org. Join the discussion there on our blog or find the Reasonable Doubts podcast Facebook group. I, I think... do. I think we need to get away from the apparel theme that we're. It's going to run out of accoutrements eventually. Uh, uh, Yeah, I've got plenty. The cod piece on Americans. I mean, what you know, you're going to have to go back into archaic. uh, I just wanted to reference the the clasp on Bible bra thing made sense because you know the Bible belt and we're northern. That was mine, man. You wanted me to change it. I like the chastity belt one. Changing it up. I'm, I'm mixing it up. My name is Dave Fletcher. With me in the studio are my fellow doubtcasters. Jeremy Bean, yellow, and Luke. I really am both a doctor and a professor. Galen, hi. No comment. In this week's show, we're going gay. We're going to take a look at the recent controversy created by a new television special from the euphemistically named American Family Association. Good friends of ours, <laughs> fans of the show, I believe. And later in the show, we've got a brand new edition of Skeptic Sunday School that is not to be missed. First. We're absolutely speechless here. Yeah, speechless. This is one of the fun things that sometimes happens when you're doing a podcast, and that is we have podcast listeners who know more about what's going on here in our hometown of Grand Rapids, Michigan, than sometimes even we do. Mm -hmm. And one morning, uh, not too long ago, I check out this blog. I think it was written in Canada. And they're referring to this documentary put out by the American Family Association Mm -hmm. called Speechless which is supposed to argue that Christians are having their free speech rights suppressed by proponents of the homosexual agenda. It's like an email that goes out. You get an agenda every month, what the homosexual agenda is. Oh, yes. Yeah. Today we're all wearing purple. Well, the local tie-in is that Grand Rapids was going to be one of the first cities, along with Columbus, Ohio, to actually air the documentary. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was our TV station here, uh, Wood TV 8, which the blogger thought that was funny that an anti-homosexual show would be broadcast on Uh, Wood wood TV. TV. Uh I was going to say something, you know, this this podcast is going to have a lot of wood jokes. We should just prepare (laughs) the listeners for that right now. Yeah, and the blogger wrote, uh, somebody on a comment to the blog said, I wonder if Reasonable Doubts podcast is going to comment on this because they live in that area. Well, this was the first I'd actually heard about it. (laughs) See, I'd actually, I I, um, had gotten a Facebook notification about this from a, a former professor of mine that, that Wood TV was going to air this and would I please call and write and all of that to get them to change their minds about it. Yeah, well, it was slated to air on a Monday night at 7 o'clock right before an Obama speech. Right. And uh, we'll get to the story of what eventually happened to the airing of the program Later, But first, we're going to spend most of the program debunking the claims in this documentary called Speechless, Silencing the Christians. 
And you can see the whole video online, which uh, all of us have, and it's, uh, it's fascinating material. Yeah. You can watch this paid program online at www.silencingchristians.com. It's really like an infomercial for intolerance. Yeah. You know, it's a good way of putting it. It does have a very infomercial-like quality yeah. to it. With the, I believe Ron Popeil is in it. Is that that guy with a loud voice? You know, the oxy guy? Oxy guy. Oh, <laughs> oxy clean. You can come see their sin wash clean. Here's a before and after of a homosexual soul. <laughs> and, yeah. and actually, the claims in the video are about that level, I, I would say. Well, it starts off with this dramatic montage mm-hmm. of Christians getting arrested for preaching the gospel with this epic music playing. It then flashes across the screen phrases like freedom of speech and then stamped with not for Christians, mm-hmm. equal protection of the law, not for Christians, tolerance, not for Christians. The cake and eat it too. You're, yeah, you can absolutely. constitute like 75% of the country and at the same time portray yourself as the embattled minority. Yep. You know, wow. <laughs> absolutely. Wow. And, That's and it, quite a miracle. It's so frustrating. Yes. Well, the documentary starts with the stunning revelation of how the homosexual agenda has been advancing due to a uh, powerful and sophisticated psychological propaganda techniques that have been force fed to the media. Here, mm. let's play a clip from the documentary. The way Americans think about homosexuality has changed over the last two decades, and if you think that's an accident, think again. Two homosexual activists wrote the book in 1989, After the Ball, How America Will Conquer Its Fear and Hatred of Gays in the 90s. In that book, Marshall Kirk and Hunter Madsen laid out powerful and sophisticated propaganda techniques to manipulate people into accepting the homosexual lifestyle. Homosexual activists redefined words. They began to call themselves gays. They labeled people who disagreed with them, homophobes and bigots. The trick, Kirk and Madsen said, is to get someone opposed to homosexuality into the position of feeling a conflicting twinge of shame whenever his homo hatred surfaces. Our effect is achieved without reference to facts, logic, or proof. Basically, the public, when you have a message, you don't want to make a lot of reference to facts because everyone knows that emotional messages are more appealing. Right. So how do, within the context of the thing that she's quoting, I might very well imagine a PR firm saying, you know, we could make our case on the basis of facts, but if we're going to appeal to the public, they're not going to listen to us, so we have to make our appeal on the basis without reference to facts, figures. That's actually what they are saying. Mm. Um the the whole thrust of this is to take these outlandish quotes, which seem very conspiratorial and, and uh, you know, threatening, but remove them from their context where they actually seem pretty sensible. If you look at this quote, they, they single out here, our effect is achieved without reference to facts, logic, or proof. And later on in the documentary, she says, uh, remember, they say ref- without reference to facts, logic, and proof, and there still is no proof. Yeah. Like the Bible. Yeah, yeah uh, that's going to that out there. Uh, does anybody see the irony in religious people claiming that it's, <laughs> yeah. it's out of bounds for someone to make an argument on the basis of uh, without reference to facts right. when they hit the faith button? Yeah. But, but what is cornered. the actual context? For well, when you when you uh, read the full context, here's what's leading up to that. Note that the bigot need not actually be made to believe that he is a heinous creature or that others will despise him and that he has been the immoral agent of suffering. It would be impossible to make him believe any such thing. Rather, our effect is achieved without reference to facts, logic, or proof, just as the bigot became such, without without any say in the matter, through repeated 
infralogical emotional conditioning, his bigotry can be alloyed in the exactly the same way. Um, that's, that's not prescriptive. That's descriptive of how... Uh, how thought processes are formed. You know, right. in, in cognitive psychology, there's hot cognitions, which are emotional, uh, quick, and that's what basically when you see people like look at a, a debate or a political message that they play the scary music and show the black and white evil guy. That's that's the same technique. You you use an appeal to with uh, people that the emotional factors are what makes people's minds up about things, and the facts are relatively mm-hmm. unimportant. Right. That's not right. saying that it should be that yeah. way. Yeah, and they're not saying that they don't have facts, reasons, or proof to support their claims that homosexuals are ordinary people and not these heinous monsters that they become. What they're saying is it's unlikely that hardcore, bigoted person is going to respond to those types of things. Right. And so getting past that, really kind of a principle of what we today call framing, that that term, which is itself kind of a euphemism for what really truly is propaganda. Right. Mm -hmm. Not that propaganda is necessarily a bad thing in all contexts. What they're talking about is the same thing that any PR firm does. Exactly. Is looking at how you craft a message about how you are depicting your public image. The, The broader context is they are talking about the importance, actually, that gays present themselves um, as normal people. Part of this is aimed at kind of the shock and awe element in the gay pride movement that are there, um, as Luke once referred to it as letting the freak flag fly. And they're making the case, no, we need to present the image to the public that we really are just ordinary people that and not prompt reactionary feelings in people by being extreme and in their face. In the same way that the the documentary, The Silencing Christian People – had a PR firm that says, look, you want to frame this as free speech. Look, you want to frame this yep. as grannies getting arrested. And when you show pictures of gays, show the gay pride freak flag party with people wearing yeah. leather and stuff. And, That's and they, the part you show. Don't show a gay family raising a kid. Right. It's the same the type, type of PR that informs the uh, teach straw, the controversy method in intelligent design. It's a straw man type thing. You, you have the worst element of your opponent set up, and then you f- want to frame it not as factual debate, but as a free speech issue. Right. You know, and they, So that's why this thing, I tried to do a of how many times they said the word lifestyle. They, uh, clearly, mm. what they know is, is that if you, fr- if you frame homosexuality rather than an orientation as lifestyle, it drums home that it's a behavior, it's chosen, and somehow right. there's, the sexual aspects are emphasized rather than the person as a human being. Mm-hmm. You can frame their, their way as they're behaving gay and they're you know, doing uh, deviant things and, and emphasize the children aspect. They always frame it in terms of children and what could harm the families because that's an emotion, it's an appeal to the emotions. They proposed a technique called conversion. Kirk and Madsen said they would bombard the public with images of homosexuals who look like the kind of men people admire, women desire, and other men want to be like. Kirk and Madsen wrote, it makes no difference that the images were lies. Wow, I think I saw it's so scary when she says it. Yeah, I saw a movie one time where, uh, where a skeptical detective said, this is an orgy of evidence. Like, this is just too good, finding this, this kind of stuff. It makes no difference that the ads are lies. Well, if you read the context of what's going on here in the book, After the Ball by Marshall Kirk and Hunter Madsen, the context is actually in a debate over what is the right way to depict a homosexual to the media. Mm -hmm. And it's in response to, uh, again, going along with the idea, uh, a quote from the book says, this image must be of necessity to be carefully tailored to be free of every element of the widely held stereotypes 
of how faggots look, dress, and sound. Mm. The image must be the icon of normality. Now, of course, some in the homosexual community were going to uh, take issue with that, and this is what they're referring to. The objection will be raised, quoting from Madsen and Kirk, that we would Uncle Tomify the gay community, that we are exchanging one false stereotype for another equally false, mm. that our ads are lies, that that is not how all gays actually look. See? So the reference to lies is actually referring to um, one counter case that they're proposing hypothetically right. to, their, to their method. And he, this is where he comes in and says, but it makes no difference that our ads are lies um, because we're using them to ethically good effect to counter negative stereotypes that are every bit as much as lies. So in other words, what they're talking about here is that, yes, we recognize that a completely 100 percent polished, average-looking American stereotype of a homosexual is a stereotype nonetheless. Right. They're just saying it's a better one than is currently out there. But when you remove that quote from its context, it sounds as if, you know, these radical gay people uh, behind closed doors plotting how we're going to deceive and mislead and corrupt the public's understanding. Look, those uh, homosexual people are using propaganda techniques on you. And that's how they start off their their show is all about quoting just that book as if the entire movement could be reducible to that book. Right. And so and if the book's. Is, is distorting things, therefore you don't have to listen to the, anything that the gay activists say. So on Speechless, after we hear about the propaganda mechanism the homosexual agenda is using to manipulate Americans, then we go on to hear typical stereotypes about homosexuals mm-hmm. and, uh, and we hear about uh, what the American Family Association believes are the underlying causes of a homosexual orientation. Uh-huh. Part of my homosexuality and, the, and what I was looking for in lesbian relationships was that I was looking for my mother's love in the arms of another woman. I was also looking for protection from men because my father abused my mom growing up and I had been also sexually abused as a young girl and so I had a very negative view of men. Just in working with so many people now as a director of a ministry that helps people coming out of homosexuality for the last 10 years, just seeing people routinely and hearing their stories and hearing so many common themes like, for example, breakdown in the relationship with the same-sex parent, gender confusion, peer rejection and labeling, where a little boy grows up and he's not considered masculine by his peers, so his peers reject him and label him and call him names. Um, like sissy, fag, and queer, not because he acts out in those ways, but because he's not good on the ball field or the playing field. He's not rough and tumble like other boys. And so then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So there's too much of this kind of um, data that uh, when you look at the people that, the men and women that are coming out of homosexuality and their stories, there's too many similarities, there's too many common themes for me to ever believe that it was genetic. First of all, One tip for the people at the American Family Association to learn is if you're going to attempt a sleight of hand where you move from anecdotal evidence to then calling it data, don't pause and go, um, data. (laughs) (laughs) You got to be smooth. Practice in a mirror. I've seen that over and over again where they say, oh, this this, uh, guy who now he's straight, he used to be gay, he makes reference to the evidence of his own life. Right. 
evidence his own life. Uh, yeah, so like if I did an infomercial, like this copper bracelet has made my joints loosen right up. Hey, that's evidence, right? You know, you could. That's right. my infomercial. Right. If I have a story that's compelling, no, I mean she. So she makes reference to the, the standard theory that homosexuality is caused by sexual abuse and uh, and, mm-hmm. and problems in the same parent same sex parent relationship. Uh, so like with her, it's lack of mother bonding and, and abuse. It's it's kind of ironic almost that the that they appeal to psychoanalytic kind of Freudian concepts of you need a, a, a same-sex parent thing and then an opposite sex. It's almost like, Oedip- oh, the Oedipal complex has been validated. Right. I, I wasn't aware of that uh, scientific advance there. And then clearly where she says, you know, oh, there's too many similarities in people of having, you know, cross-gender uh, atypical behavior growing up to be gay for it to be genetic. Well, uh, don't you think that's strong evidence <laughs> that's of a genetic say. component if you have early atypical gender behavior? Yeah. Is there anybody other than, you know, I just can't even, even a child watching that show would say, huh, well, these people are growing up and they have, you know, for whatever reason, cissified behavior in boys. Isn't that evidence of some sort of biological? Is that a real word? I just made it one. I like it. The, um, it's a neologist. That the, um, that the, isn't that evidence? And so they tr- just focus on the last part of a kid who, act, let's say a boy who acts like a sissy, then his, his dad rejects him. And therefore it's the dad's rejections that's causing his, his behavior to be feminine. Really? Right. Or it's well, her mom's raise. rejection to, to cause yeah, her to be masculine. Partly. So, so yeah, but parental rejection is a result of the yeah, kid exactly. not having, a, 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 or at least it's just as plausible or that they're related to some other variable. Right. But clearly it's consistent with there's very, very early differences with a lot of people that have gender confusion that it's a fundamental uh, uh, part of their sexual identity. They're not, uh, it's very common for gays and lesbians to report as kids they were not gender typical. So anecdotal evidence is by its own nature very weak. It lends itself to selection of evidence, uh, mm-hmm. confirmation bias. What is the scientific consensus on the roots of homosexuality? She said, I wrote down that um, there's no uh, gay gene that's been identified. Right. And that's true. But there's also the example I always use in my classes is I put up some statistics showing twin studies. Uh, and they show like identical twins sharing 50% of a trade and then fraternal twins, it goes down to 12% and then adopted siblings but raised in the same house, it goes down to single digits. And I'm like, so is this pattern, you know, it looks, is this pattern then genetic? Yeah, that's a substantial genetic component. But identical twins are only 50% likely if one is gay for the other to be gay. That's the same pattern that's found in schizophrenia and manic depression. Right. Nobody would ever call those disorders not genetically influenced. That's a substantial genetic component. But the way that people like this and uh, Dobson has also put this on his website, um, if one twin is gay, the other is only 50% likely to be gay. So therefore, it's not a genetic... Right, you know, because uh, otherwise it would be 100%. Otherwise it would be 100%. Well, 50% bullets. is massive genetic yeah. effect. Yeah. Uh, you know, and so, yeah. yes, we haven't identified a gay gene. We also haven't identified a schizophrenia, not that they're Have the we same. identified a straight or, gene? Yeah, uh, there's, no, there's no single gene for complex traits, but that doesn't right. mean that the evidence doesn't overwhelmingly show that there are, is a genetic effect when you look at things like twin studies and now all the new research on things like hormonal influences, the, uh, they're, they're doing brain laterality studies. Gay men are more likely to have certain patterns of uh, brain functioning, handedness, the digit ratios on their fingers. There's all kinds of things that have been linked to, to uh, in utero uh, patterns. Uh, there's more gay men on the mother's side of the family, almost like pattern baldness or color blindness, the mother's wow. relatives. There's all kinds of patterns that are being identified that are biological. And there's no evidence that any of this stuff is related to early childhood learning. Yeah, that's what, uh, in addition to the evidence for some sort of genetic influence, my understanding was that most of the behavioral arguments uh, that, that she cited have been debunked. Of course. Being our resident psychologist, you'll have to correct me if I'm wrong, 
But I thought the only really firm environmental correlation that came out was uh, for gay men with having older brothers. Uh, that's the older brother hypothesis. Uh, for every older brother that a, that a boy has, his chances of, of being gay go up a certain percentage level. So like in the general population, if it's like 2%, that uh, likely that any child would be a gay male if he has one older brother that goes up to like three or four. So you're still in the single digits, but it, you get incremental uh, increases the more older brothers they are. And the, the, uh, the, the explanation currently for that is that the mother's womb in some ways is having an immune reaction or remembers right. that it has previously carried a male. Because if you think about it, a, a boy in a, mom's, in, a, in a woman's uterus is a foreign object. Your body mm -hmm. has never seen genes like that before. And so that there's one of the hypotheses is that, and this has been validated in different studies statistically over large groups of people, that there's a, some gay men, not all gay men, but can trace their influence to having multiple older brothers. And it does, it's not for lesbians, it's just for gay men. Oh, well, man. how would the conditions in the womb steer that? Uh, uh, is that we don't know for sure, but recognizing it as a foreign threat. Yeah, what there might happen? be some kind of immune reaction on the part of the mother that might get, grow in strength, which would explain the stepwise increase with one each. and oh, a, okay. a, a feminizing of the or a hormonal shift. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A, yes. Thank you. That's that's a. I'm glad you mentioned that. The other uh, thing that people criticize the the Christian types criticize the genetic studies because they're not foolproof, but there are influences that are biological but not genetic, of the type right. that we just said, like in utero. So there's also, for lesbians, there's a condition called uh, congenital adrenal hyperplasia, where uh, there's too much testosterone exposure while the fetus is gestating. Now, mm -hmm. if you're a boy, uh, you know, on XY chromosomes, that doesn't really present that much of a problem to have more testosterone. But if there's a girl fetus in there and she's bathed in too much testosterone, it has a masculinizing effect, not only physically, sometimes the genitals look more male-like, but also what they're finding is behaviorally. Mm -hmm. So CIH girls, when they grow up, depending on the level of exposure, have a higher rates of cross-gender behavior. They grow up to be more tomboyish, and they self-declare as lesbians more often. So there's an influence. It's not really genetic in the sense that there's not a gene for that, but in utero, it's a biological influence. Right, right. right. It, yeah. So moving on from some anti-gay pseudoscience to another one of these claims of uh, Christians being silenced, mm -hmm. and that's important to get here because this uh, program, Speechless, is both. It is framing itself as a defense of Christian free speech rights, but these moments of defending Christians' free speech are shuffled with a lot of anti-homosexual bigotry yeah. and argument. So it, it's a bit of a bait and switch. But it's so soaked in martyrdom. Yes. Oh, these poor Christians, they were just trying to spread the word. They were just trying to save their children from the horrible homosexuals. They're for example, the documentary mentions Jim Nagel, former mayor of Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Now, Jim Nagel, according to the Speechless documentary, was just a good, law-abiding Christian guy mm -hmm. who, recognizing that there was a major AIDS problem in the Fort Lauderdale area, implemented a very reasonable set of laws that would try to curtail the spread of HIV. So his concern was for public health, and he was just doing his role as a mayor by uh, helping stop the spread of a dangerous virus like HIV. Mm -hmm. well, it was a condom distribution program? Um, no, no. Oh, really? uh, that wasn't, what? What? no. Sex education? Uh, no, no, it wasn't trying to inform ne about safe sex practices. Needle exchange program with clean needles? No, no. Actually, what he was trying to do was to crack down on homosexual sex, anonymous homosexual sex taking place in Fort Lauderdale restrooms. Got it for you, Larry Craig. 
According to Jim Nagel, there was a serious problem of gay anonymous sex taking place in these restrooms and that this risky behavior caused by the homosexual lifestyle was spreading HIV around the area. Of course, homosexual activists and others who were just concerned about the ludicrous stereotyping that he was making of mm -hmm. the homosexual community at large. But, you know, in Fort Lauderdale, that's really the only kind of sexual activity that's happening. I mean, you go down there during spring break <laughs> and it's it's quiet as a church except in, on the, in the men's restroom. Yes. Well, of course, people were offended. And so he organized a press conference where he was going to apologize. And so the crowd, uh, which was filled with uh, a, a lot of opponents, was shocked when his apology turned out to be a non-apology. Mm -hmm. He apologized not for making comments about homosexuals, uh, but for not making them sooner. He said, I want to apologize to the children and to the parents of our community for not being aware of this problem of you know anonymous gay sex taking right. place in bathrooms not being aware of this problem and doing something about it beforehand. And they talk about this in the in the speechless documentary and applaud it. Yeah. And uh, and so they go on to talk about, you know, he was doing this very sensible thing, uh, brought down a, a medical expert to talk about how these yeah. types of encounters spread HIV. And the press didn't even listen to them. The press instead gave more airtime to the uh, these homosexual activists the and hecklers, yeah, as they refer to more them reinforcement of how good Christians are being demonized for looking out for the public. Well, it turns out that, first of all, the Fort Lauderdale police reported that there had been only four incidents of alleged male sexual acts in public restrooms since November of 2005. Now, this press conference took place in October of 2007. So we're talking about in two years. Only four? Only four alleged accounts of this happening reported to the police. Well, if, if you want to have anonymous sex, don't go to Fort Lauderdale. Yeah, that's kind of a well. And yes, of course, and it's hard hard to find anyone. Yet Fort Lauderdale has nearly one million gay tourists visiting the city each year, uh, estimated to spend about a billion dollars into their local economy. So the homosexuals are having sex somewhere other than restrooms. So in other words, two shocking. <laughs> They're going down to Key West. So in other words, two out of one million <laughs> each year um, apparently engage in this behavior enough to get detected by the police department. Right. The, my evidence for that uh, just came from the CNN.com article, Gays Protest Fort Lauderdale Mayor's Remarks. The story gets even worse than that. He was actually – the way he was going to go about combating this – was by spending $250,000 on self-cleaning robotic toilets. What? <laughs> yes. They have those in uh, France. Uh, I've seen those in Paris, too. They, oh, really? They, they have those are the ones that steam it all out and everything, like you push a button oh, and it cleans it all out. That's right. That's wow. right. They have them in San Francisco, Seattle, Atlanta, and New York. Um, they're automated toilets, which uh, only give you a, a short amount of time to use them. They're single occupancy. And uh, guess what? Where he was going to install these was the, quote, rainbow parking lot at the local beach considered by some to be the area's gay beach. Mm. When people were calling him out on that very, very <laughs> bigoted move, uh -huh. um, his response was to say, uh, look, it's the homosexual newspaper that said it's the gay parking lot. This is what he told the, the Sun Sentinel. 
Quote, that's what they said. I don't use the word gay. I use the word homosexual. <laughs> Most of them aren't gay. They're unhappy. Wow. Wow. <laughs> that's the homosexual parking lot. So if they, um, actually, they have those uh, warnings on those toilets because they have all this, like, steam clean that if you don't leave any, like, children in there and stuff because they'll get scalded. So, mm-hmm. they're, you know, you have to rush and do your business, apparently, otherwise you'll I get... don't, I could not work under that pressure. <laughs> that's terrible. You have to produce, if you know what I mean. Yeah, uh, if you want to wow. get out of there, you know, toilet will self-destruct. In one minute. Nagel has a very long track record of trying to ban uh, gay books uh, from a local library, mm. making all sorts of inflammatory comments no, I'm on sure he's able different to keep, social issues. He keeps all that separate, though, from his policies, Jeremy, Absolutely. if he says he does. It's just about the health and safety of the citizens. Yes. That's right. But see, again, selection of evidence. They're, they're trying to use this as a case study in, how, nice. in how good Christian citizens are being attacked because of their simple public health concerns that they have about homosexual activity. But when you actually look at the broader context, this guy was... uh, Gunning for gays. Yeah. If if the concern really is about the health issue, why not? Again, like I said before, maybe this is naive. Have have condom distribution programs right right there. Have uh, have more public safety. Uh, Those things seem... The reason that those remarks... Far more realistic to work. Yeah, we know that they work. There's scientific studies that show that those sort of things work to reduce infection rates or needle exchange and things like that. But of course, those are never going to fly because of public pressure and all the Christians say, well, that's we want, what we want is the gays to stop having sex. So it's clear that they don't want to reduce, they don't care about the HIV rate being no. high. Uh, they don't care about things like that. And if I might add, if promiscuity is your problem, then we, what we know is that lesbian couples actually have lower cheating rates than heterosexual right. couples because there's no man involved. So what they should promote then is, le- is people, the lesbians, to come down there because they're... We need more you know, lesbians. It'll be more safer for families. the family. But that's a real problem with it. Speaking of selective evidence, though, one of my favorite things in this video is they talk about violence against Christians. Yeah. And they, they talk about how in the past... 50 years, there have been no less than nine shootings at churches yeah, I wrote or, that or something like that in the past year. Uh, in the past shot year. in church. Uh, yeah. Was and there they, any evidence that those shootings were actually related to gay that activists? Had anything to do with, with homosexuality? None. They offer no evidence whatsoever. They just say shootings have happened at churches. Christians are being targeted. And by the way, there are homosexuals. Wow. Yeah. There's, I mean, a, there's a direct link, I guess. It's absolutely nauseating. Yeah, just putting up these things by association. Can we track down, actually, in, in the school uh, church shootings to see what proportion were, were gay? The, what, what are they referring I did to? A, I did a cursory web search, and most of the church burnings I found were either racially motivated yep. or just, like, complete lunatics. Well, like the dude in Wisconsin who walked in and shot it up? That wasn't yeah. the— uh, he No, wasn't that a, had nothing the, to do The dude with... in, in Knoxville— uh, last year that did that he, um, he said it was because of the liberal the church was too yeah, liberal the, yes. the unitarian, the unitarian church right. shot it up because it was too liberal chicken shit i don't think he was a, a gay activist well and the yeah. you know you look at the the amish school children that had nothing to do with homosexuality you know but there's look at these church there's shootings. church shootings and there's gays so yep it's case closed uh, here let's play a clip from the documentary i'm concerned about same-sex marriage for a host of reasons but i think the chief one that motivates me is this, that when government prescribes a wholesale redefinition of the family, it knowingly sets a policy that knowingly deprives children of a mom and a dad. Study after study after study, all the ones that are done in a nonpartisan manner, tell us that kids need a mom and a dad to do well in life. Two moms could be two great moms, but they can never be a great father. 
One day they're reading about puppy dogs, and the next day they're reading about going to the beach or having an argument with a friend, and then all of a sudden they're confronted with two princes who fall in love and want to get married. And the kids are going, oh, what is going on here? And I think that's the real danger that we're confronting, is that um, our kids are guinea pigs because we don't know the long-term impact of these kinds of lessons for little children. And we have a whole group of adults who are homosexual or lesbian saying, this is fine. Kids can handle two mommies or two daddies, but we don't have the scientific data to prove that that's okay. And we have plenty of evidence at the experiential level that says kids can't handle this. Kids are very perplexed by it. If you raise your kids and say that uh, it's an abomination and, and gays are unhappy and it's whatever like that or don't say anything, I'm sure that a Christian kid would come up and say, hey, we read a book in school today that says two princes are happy or what Heather's gives? two mummies. Are, what yeah. gives her that? Yes, they're confused because you've been feeding them a bunch of lies so far and they can't manage to, to make it gel with the reality that they see. I'm sorry. My favorite moments in parenting are kids confused trying to figure things out because they're they're working their th- way through it. They're not being spooned. Those back. are teachable moments. That's exactly what you want. I also like the way that they turn the tables and say there's no evidence that we have that it's healthy. Burden of proof yeah, issues. That's Check an me out argument on this. from absence. Is, isn't the null hypothesis here that unless otherwise that, uh, that there shouldn't be assumed to be any negative effects right. of saying that, yes, there's gay couples well, out there? Well, what evidence do we have to suggest that teaching tolerance does not corrupt? What, really what af- evidence is there, Luke? There's no evidence, and there's no evidence even being raised within a gay family makes people more likely to be gay. The most that's been shown no, is, that, fact, is that children of les- like there's, there's been a study that they always pick on. They say, well, look, uh, there's a study that shows children of le- raised by lesbians mothers are more likely to be gender atypical. That is, uh, females are more um, uh, assertive in what, like, career right. rather than families, and, and boys are more sensitive and empathic, and that they're more likely to have considered a same-sex relationship, meaning that the, they put on the survey, yeah, I wouldn't mind if, if, that, if I was gay to, be, to have that relationship, but there's no evidence that they're more likely to be gay. Right. Uh, you know, out of studies of, like, uh, you know, f- uh, groups of, like, 40, and they have, had, like, a control group of heterosexual moms, there's like two of the entire sample that turned out to be uh, right. bisexual or gay. I'm going to go on record as saying that in an ideal world, everyone is raised by lesbians. Yeah. And in fact, some of the studies they have that show lesbian couples actually have they have superior parenting skills. Like they sure. uh, are more aware. They think more about but what they they're don't doing have as a parents. Dad. How will they learn to change the oil? Actually, and this is one thing, a lot of the unescapable conclusions of these family studies are that having a male in the, in the family is bad. That 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 uh, that that dads just any kind of guy are worse than either a mom or two moms. A uh, single mom, that's, because yeah. like the more with spanking and like uh, yelling at the kids and things like that, sure. you're more at risk for any of those sort of things with the presence of any male. Right. There's actually an interesting video. Some of these uh, research studies are done by um, there's a researcher called uh, by the name of Judith Stacy. And you can go on YouTube because a lot of the uh, her work has been criticized by the American like family association types and and Dobson. And if you go YouTube, Judith Stacy and and Robert Spitzer, they respond to how their work has been distorted by um, the focus on the family. So like uh, she'll they'll play a clip from Dobson's group saying all the evidence shows that a child needs a mother and a father to have you know, cross-gender things, and then they, uh, you know, was that what your study really found? And she's like, no, obviously we didn't find that. Right. They distort that. And one of the big hitters in the um, in the psychiatric community is Robert Spitzer, who's like one designed the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical mm-hmm. Manual. His, he did a study showing that he found like 200 uh, 
uh, gay people who wanted to change with conversion therapy, and some of them were able to make some changes. And so Dobson sold it as, look, send your kid in and it you works. can change. And so they, uh, and they interviewed Spitzer himself, who ran the study and said, you know, the, uh, the study showed that few, if anybody, uh, a few people are able to change, even when they're highly motivated to change. And you can find some people that are able to report some sort of, yes, I don't behave, I don't have same-sex behavior anymore. But he said that his study was basically distorted by, by Dobson. And so you can actually see researchers showing how their data has been combed over by these people. And anything that, that supports their theory, they, they trundle it out mm-hmm. yeah. and say, oh, look, here's we, this study found that you know it makes uh, boys more empathic to be raised by lesbians. Wow. They can't make their case except by cherry-picking, selecting the evidence in their favor. Uh, And then the rest of the time, they rely on these anecdotal evidence, uh, what seems right, their gut feeling about the situation. But of course, if you're already harboring prejudicial views towards homosexuals, you're going to see the world in a way that is consistent with that viewpoint. But – May there not be a real issue here, of course. Even the most bigoted person, even uh, the strongest homophobe or, for that matter, the racist, uh, still in America has the right to free speech, still has the right to proclaim their views, right? Like the Nazis in uh, marching on Skokie, as deplorable as that was. Um, the The ACLU still stepped in to defend them because it was their right to free speech. Well, the the documentary Silenced goes on to talk about how hate crime laws are being used to attack Christians and to assail Christians for having politically incorrect views. Now, first of all, I want to say that I, I personally do have a bit of a problem with hate crime laws. I, I absolutely I, do. I'm not yeah. convinced – I'm not completely convinced that they work in the public's benefit or that they couldn't be dis- distorted to yeah. uh, to fight against legitimate free speech. We've had that debate before in the show about like European laws that say that you can't criticize right. uh, religion or things like can't that. can't say and that the Holocaust didn't happen. Yeah. So this is one area where I sympathize a bit with their argument because I do think – uh, offensive speech deserves constitutional protection. In fact, what else could be the purpose of defending uh, speech if it didn't include offensive speech? Because offensive speech is what needs to be protected. Offensive speech is what is most likely to be attacked uh, by, right. by the public. But where I disagree with the documentary is I think the cases they present are overblown and distorted to suggest that this is much more of a problem than it actually is. The case they use when they speak of American hate crime laws being used against Christians is the case of the infamous Philadelphia 11. That sounds like the uh, the big Lebowski thing. I was part of the Port of Huron statement. That's right. The original one, not the watered down second draft. <laughs> Lebowski reference. I can't believe it. We've gone this far on the show without a Lebowski well, no, reference. We've had Lebowski references. What you'll see in the Speechless documentary are cases of ordinary Christians, you know, um, shirt and collar, button down types, including uh, nice, friendly grandmas mm-hmm. that are being uh, hauled off into the paddy wagon, as they put it, for doing nothing more than preaching the gospel at a gay pride event. So unfair. This all centered around a gay pride march, Philadelphia's Outfest. It's the city of brotherly love. That's right. So quit hating on me. And at Outfest, a group of Christian protesters from the group called Repent America 
confronted protesters with signs containing anti-homosexual rhetoric, shouting uh, Bible passages through a bullhorn, and they were eventually arrested and escorted off the premises by police. So, yes, this is the infamous Philadelphia 11, four of which um, at one point looked like they might be facing up to 47 years in prison and $90,000 in fines for preaching the gospel on the public sidewalk, which does sound like a pretty disturbing thing. And, of course, the speechless documentary goes on to talk about this is what these hate crime laws are doing. Mm -hmm. Not protecting minorities, mind you, just punishing Christians. Once again, they don't share the entire story. First of all, the hate crime charges were dropped. The judge threw them out right away. So if those penalties seemed extreme, possibly 47 years in prison and $90,000 in fines, they were. And the judge recognized this. It was only the fault of the prosecutor who was overreaching the case that they actually had. Mm. So in other words, um, when you actually look at how the case played out, it shows that these hate crime laws were not actually abused. This is from hrc.org, Human Rights Campaign. Pennsylvania's hate crime laws specify a group of violent crimes, including arson, destruction of property, that can carry an additional charge of ethnic intimidation if committed with malicious intent towards actual or perceived race, color, religion, sexual orientation, etc. Since this case did not fit that bill, this was only for extreme acts of violence or destruction of property, arson, that sort of thing, uh, it was thrown out. There was no hate crime. Mm. Now, when this group, the Philadelphia 11, then tried to turn around and sue the city and sue the organizers of Outfest, they tried to sue them for, for barring their free speech rights. Their case was dismissed. Why was their case dismissed? Because the group of Christian protesters did not properly obtain a permit for their event. I was going to say. When they clashed with protesters, uh, they were shouting anti-homosexual rhetoric out of bullhorns on the crowd. When there was a a clash that looked like it might escalate towards violence and the police tried to uh, move them, the Christian protesters disobeyed police orders. The court statement said they acted belligerently and threatened the peace by antagonizing a large crowd of people. Mm -hmm. So in other words, why they were arrested had nothing to do with the content of their speech, with preaching the gospel. It had everything to do with their behavior and conduct at the scene of the protest. Now, um, the story of Wood TV airing Speechless here ended in victory for the homosexual agenda, I suppose, because they got a flood of calls in um, to the station, including mine. And, and frankly, I have to say, I, I don't know if I feel bad about it or not, because the whole video is about censoring Christians and how they're not allowed to be heard. And then what happened was they are, chose not to air the show. They were, in fact, censored and is that a is that a double standard as a free speech advocate don't the, don't the public airways though have a have a uh, isn't there some clause in the law that they have an issue of of service to the community where they yeah. can't like let's say i want to do a documentary on some nonsense like you know here's a documentary on how design or yeah, or, yeah. Or, or no like a, a vaccines cause uh autism or something right. like that could i put that on without any response or rebuttal and that would be okay if from and i can claim free speech 
I'm not sure that's true. Do you have a right to your own facts, even if they're not correct? Not to mention yeah. Wood TV was a private network, a privately owned television network um, that has responsibilities to its sponsors. Right. And then and, – and so must actually respond to the viewpoints of their consumers. I don't think this is a violation of their free speech because there was no law passed to prevent them from disseminating their materials. It's uh, on the internet. It's available. Right. Right. It was just this particular forum where they were not allowed to play their program. And right. actually, when you read the article, Wood TV cancels mm -hmm. offer to air controversial one-hour ad from the Grand Rapids Press, when you read it, actually, it doesn't look like them pulling the program was necessarily in response to public outcry. They, they really offered doesn't. a different uh, time slot, and then yes. the, then the uh, people never got back to them in time. Yeah, they, they didn't hear back in 24 hours. They moved it to a 2 p.m. slot time slot on Saturday, yeah. so a worse time slot than the than the great prime time. Right before Obama's one. speech. Yeah. Right, and they made that offer to the American Family Association. The American Family Association then failed to contact them within 24 hours, and they rescinded the offer. Yep. So it's really not even a clear cut of them no. silencing the silenced documentary. Yeah, people – this happens all the time. Do you guys remember four, year, four or five years ago when they had that Postcards from Buster show that they were going to play? This is the PBS uh, cartoon series where they go around the little cartoon. Oh, yeah, yeah. Arthur goes around a different area. Yeah. And so he was – there was an episode where he visited a maple syrup farm in, in, in Vermont – run by lesbians. Right. And so, again, Margaret Spellins, the Secretary of Agriculture, lost her mind and was like, you know, this is promoting uh, inappropriate messages with yeah, gays. So right. the, the local station pulled that episode, too. Yeah. And I remember because I wrote in and I got the program or I called the program director and got her and she said, well, since gay marriage is not legal in Michigan, it would actually be airing something that's not legal. You know, and I'm like, oh, but it's in geez. Vermont. And so civil unions yeah. are in Vermont. And, you know, but they, the point with that is, is that they pulled that. Now, is that silencing Buster? the lesbian promoter or, you know, to, to pull a program like that. It happens. It happens. My point is it happens across the political yeah. spectrum. Sometimes programs don't come on for whatever reason with viewer response. It's not unique to Christians where their no. viewpoint is being squelched. But then, of course, the American Family Association has on their website speechless, um, silenced by a handful of homosexual activists. Yeah. This is the same crap it's that Ben Stein used to... playing into their hand because of the way yeah, they're it, actually framing it. They're preparing exactly. for a public act And that's backlash. really why I, why I kind of feel bad about it being being stopped here is because it gives them something to add on to volume two of Speechless. We well, made this great program, and these stations in Columbus, Ohio as well won't air it. And I think, well... Well, that's off. why people like us are trying to make it clear what the actual contents of this video are. That's right. And, uh, and arm people to respond to them. And we encourage our listeners living in, in cities around America, you know, that the American Family Association, if you catch wind of them trying to air this, this documentary speechless in your area, please do... Make a fuss. Write letters to the editor and write more than just this bigoted show should not be put on. Share with them the real evidence. Share with them uh, the counter arguments to this piece of Christian propaganda and expose it for what it really is. All right. And now, ladies and gentlemen, Skeptic Sunday School.
So with our remaining moments, we thought we might look at the issue of, of homosexuality in a different context. Mm -hmm. uh, in the Bible, are there examples of any homosexual relationships that don't result in execution? I mean, other than Jesus and the apostles? <laughs> oh, um, that's inappropriate. They were friends. Very close I mean, ones uh, ones that are sympathetic, not like the story of Sodom and Gomorrah that right. end in fire and brimstone. Maybe the, the, the nicer side of homosexuality. Sure. And there's one candidate. I'm not going to say for sure uh, that this is, this is truly an example of a affectionate homosexual relationship in the Bible, but there is at least one candidate. That is the relationship between David and Jonathan – and we're going to do a dramatic reading of some selected verses from First and Second Samuel. The soul of Jonathan was bound to the soul of David. Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that he was wearing and gave it to David. Then Jonathan said to David, Whatever you say, I will do for you. Come, let us go out into the field. So they both went out into the field. David rose and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He bowed three times. They kissed each other and wept with each other. David wept the more. My brother Jonathan, your love to me was wonderful, passing the love of a woman. That's filthy. Yeah. That's the dirtiest thing we've yeah. ever done. Yeah. Uh, and we should say uh, right off the bat in, in, uh, in favor of intellectual integrity here that we, we removed an awful lot of context from these verses to make them sound as sexual no. as we possibly could. Like from beside the stone heap. That doesn't add anything to the dramatic narrative here. <laughs> Did I hit this, the cutting room floor? Who, who wrote this text? As soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap. That makes it sexier. Is this the Deuteronomist? Because he's got no sense of flow with romance. With a you know, his heart is a stone heap. All right. The situation in the Bible is that uh, Jonathan is Saul, King Saul's son. David is destined to take Saul's throne. He's from already him. been anointed, correct? Right. He's yeah. already been anointed by the prophet Samuel because with Saul. Olive oil. Yes, Saul has been up to no good and doesn't deserve the throne anymore. Jonathan has pledged, uh, has made a covenant or pledged an oath of loyalty and love to David. But because of the very close-knit nature of their relationships and certain references, some have speculated that this might have been more than just a political allegiance or just a very close heterosexual male friendship. Mm. Let me first make the case for... David and Jonathan being homosexuals. Oh, yeah. It begins with verses in 1 Samuel 18. This is where it says in, in verse 1, it says things like, the soul of Jonathan was bound to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Now, uh, now that's not, you know, too much to make a case out of. Uh, but then it goes on in verse 4 to, to where Jonathan rather erotically strips himself of his robe, all of everything he was wearing, um, I think alleging that he was naked, and gives it to David. Sounds pretty hot. Then we, of course, have this romantic encounter, uh, or so it seems, 
in 1 Samuel 20, in verses 41, David and Jonathan have a secret rendezvous with each other. The purpose of them meeting up is because uh, King Saul wants to kill David. Right. And so Jonathan meets David to deliver a message that it isn't safe to return to the king's court, that Saul is out to kill him. He helps him hide out, doesn't he? Right. Hmm. And uh, in this passage in uh, in 1 Samuel 20, verse 41, um, it says, David rose from behind the stone. He prostrated himself with his face to the ground, and he bowed three times, and they kissed each other and wept with one another. Uh, Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, since both of us have sworn in the name of the Lord, saying the Lord shall be between me and you and your descendants forever. We have in 2 Samuel verse 126, after Jonathan's death, David making the comment, I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Greatly beloved were you to me. Your love to me was wonderful, passing that of a woman. And then what I think is often overlooked as good evidence for this perhaps being uh, more than just a friendship Mm -hmm. is Saul's anger against his son Jonathan. Saul in 1 Samuel 20 verse 30, it says, Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. He said to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? Verse 31, for as long as the son of Jesse lives upon the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Now, what this verse seems to be pointing at is that Saul is angered because Jonathan is politically supportive of David, that he is uh, basically removing his own right of succession to the throne as being the son of King Saul. But it's very telling that he that Saul uses this phrase, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? It's clearly a sexual reference. Oftentimes, references to your mother's nakedness are references to uh, to genitals. Uh, it's a euphemistic title for genitals. So why would there be a sexually explicit notion in this insult that he's giving uh, that he's giving Jonathan. Is it perhaps that Saul knows that there's some sort of relationship going on here um, that is more than just a friendship and that he as a parent is infuriated by this and so he's making allegations? Mm-hmm. When you take some other evidence from outside of the Bible, when you look at, for example, uh, comparative mythology and and other books that uh, – that we know influenced other myths that crossed into the Hebrew Bible from other cultures, such as the Enuma Elish. There's a lot of uh, myths that cross paths there. What about Achilles and his, uh, his lover? Yes, oh, yeah, Achilles, totally. Achilles. Well, the Greeks throughout. I mean, Zeus has male lovers. And, and, um, and Alexander the Great and Hephaestion, Hephaestion his uh, childhood friend. Yes, there mm-hmm. seems to be a common theme in ancient literature of great male heroes also also indulging at one point in in sexual relations. Um, and in fact, uh, other authors have commented that this seems to be a staple of, of military subculture, which David and Jonathan were both warriors. Right. I mean, throughout time, but especially in the ancient world. The ancient Theban, uh, the, the sacred Theban band of warriors? Where they were all compared up gay lovers, and they fought for their because they they would fight extra fierce because their lover was next to them. Right. So these are all used to allege that perhaps that's what we have here. 
One additional piece of biblical evidence is that although Leviticus clearly condemns homosexuality as a capital crime, Deuteronomy, which First and Second Samuel are part of the Deuteronomic history, so they are written by the same set of authors or have the same set of influences, the book of Deuteronomy carries over all capital crimes that are in Leviticus save one, and that is the crime of homosexuality. It's not even mentioned. In fact, throughout all of the Deuteronomic history, homosexuality is not mentioned. What you get reference to is uh, temple prostitutes, mm-hmm. male right. temple prostitutes, um, which was part of pagan worship in the area. So prostitution uh, is bad. Yes. Now, the King James and other versions translate that sodomite or homosexual, but it's actually disguising that the term was was pointing to a very specific class of male gigolo. So all these count for evidence that perhaps there is that relationship. Now, uh, right before we close, I'm going to add, though, that I, I personally do have a bit of skepticism about this. I don't think the case is nearly uh, that watertight that this really is a homosexual relationship. First of all, you get plenty of references to males kissing in other parts of the Bible where, where there are no homosexual overtones. Um, and most of these passages, when you look at them, seem to be talking about political allegiances and and the vows take place in that context. So I don't think we can say with 100% certainty that this is what's going on. There's room for doubt. But just throwing it out there as an interesting one to consider. It wouldn't be the first time the Bible has contained material that seems to contradict itself. And uh, This is true. Well, let's look at the incest ones. It's supposedly you're not supposed to have incest, but then if you look back, there's all kinds of people that married their sister and mm-hmm. have pretending that there was a sister, uh, a wife instead of a sister. and you know, right. Same thing. And we know that David was amorous in his sexual appetites altogether. Absolutely. Not unlike Zeus, who also liked men, women, and animals. He sent the guy into battle to be killed so he could have his wife. Mm-hmm. That's right. It's not a very nice thing to do. No. Well, anyways. All right. That's all for this week's episode. We're going to take a week off, and we'll be back in two weeks with another new edition of Reasonable Doubts. In the meantime... Please check us out at www.doubtcast.org. Send us your questions, comments, and challenges to doubtcast at gmail.com. And find us on Facebook, write a review on iTunes, all of that other good stuff. Thanks for listening. Keep the non-faith. To catch up on past Reasonable Doubts episodes or to email your questions or comments, check out www.doubtcast.org. Reasonable Doubts is a production of WPRR Reality Radio. You can find out more about Reality Radio at publicrealityradio.org. Reasonable Doubts theme music is performed by Love Fossil and used with permission.